Once again, and turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. As many of you know, I pastored in the state of Indiana uh, for a number of years, and we recently just made a trip back to Indiana to see our daughter. And uh, this just last week, I had a great time uh, with her. She's doing well. Uh, and uh, she had a medical procedure that uh, uh, we thought might she might need mom and dad there for uh, just to be encouraged. She did need a chauffeur. I was the chauffeur, and uh, Mrs. Fleming was her personal nurse. So uh, we were doing our uh, parental duty there, and uh, but she was doing fine. So we came back home, and and uh, but I was. Uh, thinking about Indiana a little bit, and I, uh, of course, being a history uh, teacher at one time, I, I know a little bit about uh, Indiana history. So I'm going to give you a little Indiana history this morning. In On March 22, 1824, an incident took place in Madison County, Indiana, which came uh, to be known as the Fall Creek Massacre. Six white men murdered nine Seneca and Miami Indians and wounded another. And among the nine dead were three women and four children. And the six men were apprehended. They were tried, and then some were executed. One of the men was a man by the name of John Bridge. John Bridge, Jr., actually. And he was sentenced to death by hanging for his part in the massacre. He was executed. uh, He was to be executed, I should say, on June the 3rd. 1825. His father, John Bridge Sr., another man by the name of Andrew Sawyer, uh, who was John Bridge's uncle, along with a third man, were all executed that day. John Bridge Jr., along with a large crowd, uh, witnessed the hangings of his father and these two other men as the crowd waited expectedly uh, for a pardon from the governor. And with no sign of a pardon, a sermon was preached as the crowd waited. And finally, John Bridge Jr. was to was led to the gallows and the rope was put over his head. And yet the men waited for a signal. And then a cheer arose from the back of the crowd. And a stranger rode forward or came forward and looked at the condemned man in the face. And he said this, Sir, do you know in whose presence you stand? Bridge shook his head. Well, there are but two powers known to the law that can save you from hanging by the neck until you're dead. And one is the great God of the universe. The other is J. Brown Ray, governor of the state of Indiana. The latter stands before you. And handing over the written pardon, the governor announced, You are pardoned. In an instant, what looked like a hopeless situation became a door of hope. John Bridge Jr. went back home. He settled down and opened a dry goods store and died peacefully 51 years later. Now, I tell you that story to ask you a question. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped the heart of this young man as he watched his father and his uncle die, knowing that he was going to be next? Can you imagine the terror that he he had as he was led to the gallows and that noose was placed around his neck? 
It must have been a moment of terror like few have ever experienced. But I know at least one person who experienced that feeling. And that is this poor sinful woman in our text this morning. She knew that kind of fear. And as she was led trembling into the presence of Jesus, she knows in her heart that she's about to die a horrible death by stoning. And yet her path had led her into the presence of the great God of the universe. And when she met him, everything changed forever. Now let me just go aside here just a minute and mention how we use the King James Bible here at Spooner Baptist Church. And there are many reasons for this. Many preachers and churches have abandoned this precious translation of the Bible, but not I. And one of the reasons is the basis for this translation. And I would love to give you a great explanation for that. might take you from now until you know the end of the year. But let me give you just a simple explanation for this, and that is that it came from a reliable source. And most, if not all, new translations have come from unreliable, corrupted source. Now, if we trace the text back to its origin, we find the King James Version is based on the received text, which is in the line of Byzantine or Antioch line of manuscripts. And I'm not going to try to explain that to you, but you also have the critical text, which is the basis of modern translations. They're traced back to the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. By the way, there are only 45 to 50. The originals are all gone. They're not in existence. But copies of the originals, there are about 45 to 50 of the Alexandrian text, but there are more than 5,000 of the Antioch that are in existence. And I want to explain to you all the, the details about that, but just to say that the Alexandrian line is corrupted. And the corrupted Alexandrian line does not have this passage in the manuscript. From chapter 7, verse 53, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, you'll not find. Now you'll find in Bibles, modern translations like the ESV or the NIV, you'll find them put in brackets. And there'll be a little note on the side that says the best or the oldest manuscripts do not have this passage in them. But you know what? The portion that we are looking at this morning was received by the churches of Jesus Christ for 18 centuries, and it is certainly part of the preserved Word of God. And we're not going to skip it. You know, if we were using one of these modern translations, we'd have to come to say, well, this is not really in the, in the Bible, so we're just going to skip over it. It may be in some translations where it's not even there. They're not even put in brackets. It's just gone. And they start chapter 8 with verse 12. And so this is a significant portion of Scripture, and I want us to know what Jesus did for this poor, wretched woman. He will do for you as well. Now, this passage, a lot of it has to do with salvation and you say pastor i'm saved i know i'm saved i can remember the day i was saved and i say amen to that 
There may be someone here that does not know for sure that they're saved. And what Jesus did for this poor woman, he can do for you as well. You see, she came into his presence as a condemned sinner, but she left his presence a changed woman with a new lease on life. And if for no other reason, it's worth our time to investigate this matter this morning. And we want to take a few minutes to just look at this passage and share with you from guilt to grace. Notice, first of all, a condemned sinner. Verse 3, it says, in verse 3, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. I want you to notice, first of all, her sin. According to this narrative, she was caught in the very act of adultery. She was guilty before the face of the Lord and before the world. And adultery is a serious, vile sin. Do you know when you look at the sins as they're listed in the Bible, the commandments, thou shalt not this or not, thou shalt not that, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. There's no emphasis on one over the other. They're all sin. Even as James says in James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, He is guilty of all. And we might think this morning, you know, well, you know, that's a terrible, terrible sin. But really, God doesn't put it any worse a sin than he does, say, coveting. Wanting something that's not yours. Stealing, taking something that does not belong to you. You see, even if we've never committed this sin, we're still sinners and we're condemned to die. Even if we would never have committed a sin, I know of some people, I know one fellow that said, I got saved and I never sinned after that. I just made mistakes. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Not one person in here is not, it would be a person that has never sinned. We're all guilty, just like this woman And yet many times our problem is we don't want to admit it. And so we find her sin. She's a condemned sinner. Notice, secondly, her shame. In their haste to bring this woman to Jesus, her accusers probably didn't give her sufficient time to get properly dressed before they brought her into the public. And yet that may have been she was certainly humiliated by a public accusation and disclosure of her sin. And sin is a shameful thing. 
No matter how skillfully it is hidden from the eyes of men, Jesus knows all about it. And one day it will be revealed before all. Saddest of all, the truth about our profession will also be made public one day. And wouldn't it be far better to get everything right with the Lord and have nothing to fear? There will come a day when there's going to be judgment and full disclosure. Revelation 20 verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face... The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place, no found, no place for them. For I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the dead and hell, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to his, to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found in, written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, again, you say, thank God I'm saved. Because I don't have to stand before that great white throne. But there may be somebody here that's going to stand there and going to say, but Lord, I went to church. But Lord, I did this and I did that. And he's going to say, sorry, I never knew you. And he's going to cast you into the lake of fire. Because your name is not written in the book of life. And so we notice here her shame her sin and her shame. And then thirdly, we notice her sentence. Her accusers were absolutely correct. According to the law, she deserved to die. There was one small problem here. Where was her partner? You see, both were supposed to die according to the law. And the man may have been part of this scheme to attack Jesus. He may have been allowed to slip away. Nevertheless, this woman was guilty and she deserved to die. You see, nobody gets away with sin. And the penalty of sin always comes due. As one old preacher said, there's going to be a payday someday. The only hope any sinner has is to flee to the arms of Jesus. And he offers the only hope anyone in this world or the one to come. He is the only way. Now, in their effort to humiliate this woman and to discredit the Lord, they brought her to the best possible place. They brought her to the very man who would deal with her past and her problems and who would make it all right. I want you to realize this morning that you should never think that Jesus doesn't care for you. He's the sinner's friend. Even in his day, he was known to, as we say in the modern language today, hang out with notorious sinners. Jesus proved his love and his friendship when he died on Calvary. You see, Jesus wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about the eternal soul of a person. And he's concerned about your soul this morning. We see a condemned sinner here. Notice, secondly, a cruel scheme. We see this in verses 3 through 9. 
talks about the scribes and the Pharisees who brought her here, and they were they had a a, a, a plan. Let's look at that plan. The plan there. These men were attempting to pin Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And if Jesus simply let the woman go, then he would have been easy on sin. He could have been arrested for a violation of the law. If, however, he gave permission for the woman to be killed, he could be accused before Rome as a upstart, a rabble-rouser, a seditionist, and he would have destroyed his reputation as being a friend of publicans and sinners. And so they felt they had Jesus. And Jesus had no way of getting out of this. He had no wiggle room here. Well, so thought these religious men. And they're like a lot of legalists today. They couldn't have cared about, uh, couldn't care less about the woman. They couldn't have cared less about her sin or her soul or her eternal destiny. All they cared about was pressing their agenda and their brand of righteousness. Things have not changed much, have they? So we have the plan. Secondly, we have the problem. Their plan might have succeeded with an ordinary man, but they're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he simply refused to play by their rules. And when they tried to stump Jesus, they discovered they had met their match. Notice how he responded to their arguments. First of all, Jesus ignored them. In verse 6, it says, This they said, tempting him that they might have have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He knelt down and began to write in the ground. He had no use for their pettiness or their lack of love for sinners. But what did Jesus write? Well, I don't know if you know, I don't know. For 2,000 years, men have tried to solve that little mystery. I don't know. And if you know, you know a lot more than I do, that's for sure. And a lot of other theologians. Now, we could kind of speculate, couldn't we? We could kind of think, well, maybe he was writing something like this. Maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. After all, it was his finger that wrote them in the first place, right? On the tablets. Or maybe he wrote the names in fulfillment of Jeremiah 17 and verse 13, where it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living waters. Maybe he wrote their names. Or maybe he wrote out Leviticus 20 and verse 10. It says there, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. Or Deuteronomy 22.22, which is a very similar verse to that in Leviticus. Or maybe he wrote the names of their lady friends or their girlfriends. Or maybe he just wrote the word forgiven. Those are all good possibilities. But again, I emphasize to you, I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And maybe he'll tell us when we get to heaven. 
Whatever he wrote, it got their attention, didn't it? By the way, he knows how to speak to your heart as well. He knows how to get your attention. If you insist on ignoring God and the things of God, God loves you enough to get your attention, and He will. How much better it is to come to Him by faith and miss all the exposure and the punishment. And so it would seem Jesus just ignored them. But He also did expose them. In verses 7 through 9, when Jesus did speak, He said, He that is without sin among Let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus wasn't requiring that any judge be sinless. If that was the case, then no human would ever be able to render judgment on any matter, even in the court of law. I think what Jesus may have been saying to these hypocrites was, he that is free from this particular sin, let him first cast a stone at her. You see, adultery can be committed with the head. And the heart, as surely as it may be committed with the the body. And at this point, all the shouting came to a stop. And all uh, all that could be heard was the dropping of their rocks and the shuffle of their sandals as they slipped quietly away. You see, these men had been exposed before their fellow man and the accused woman. And most importantly, before the Lord. But let's at least give them credit for the fact that when they saw themselves as they really were, and perhaps the most painful realization of all, they stopped calling for the death of the woman. And I want you to know that one of the hardest things you can face is yourself as you really are. Can you identify with that? I can. It's really hard for me to admit what I really am. But when you see yourself as being sinful, then you can do something about it. Paul would have went to hell had it he not been brought face to face with himself on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And when we are convicted of our sins, then it's time to come to Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't say, oh, it'll all work out. Deal with it. After all, he is the only one who can deal with your sin problem. And so we have a condemned sinner, we have a cruel scheme, and thirdly, we have a complete salvation. We find this in verses 9 through 11. I want you to notice here in these verses, in verse 9 it says, And they which heard it being convicted of their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. You see, that's what happens when we come to realize who we are. It's just you and Jesus. And when Jesus had lifted himself up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus, first of all, he faced her. Only Jesus could have cleared the temple after that fashion. And when the last rock had hit the temple floor, Jesus stood up and faced this sinful woman. As he stood there before her, he was the only one in the world 
that has ever known who is qualified to take up that first stone, as well as all the rest of the stones, and stone her to death. And when she faced Jesus, she was facing the ultimate judge. You see, she had reached a place in her life where it was just her and Jesus. And it always comes down to that, does it not? Eventually, somewhere, someday, you're going to have to face the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, somewhere, someday, you're going to have to bow to Jesus. Well, I'm sure he's given you opportunities in this life to come to him. But what have you done with them? Listen, you will either receive Jesus as one of life's encounters or you'll face him on judgment day. Which would it rather be? In the end, it always comes down to just you and Jesus. And what you do with him will determine where and how you spend eternity. Jesus faced her. Secondly, Jesus forgave her. The the only one qualified to throw a stone refused to. And Jesus dealt with her on the basis of grace. The religious men had condemned her and considered her as good as dead. Jesus, however, saw someone worthy of his love and worth salvaging. And when she came to Jesus, she received a new Lord. By her simple confession. Did you see it there? She said, neither, or, or he, she said, no man. It's the next word. Lord. See, that's all there is to being saved. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's really not complicated. Even small children can comprehend that truth and make it real in their lives. I wonder, what about you this morning? Have you taken that step of faith? Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved through faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. And when a sinner comes to Jesus by faith, they receive forgiveness for all their sins and absolute liberation from all condemnation. Jesus forgave her. Some of us might think, yeah, but that was adultery. You know? There are some sins we think sometimes, I could never forgive them for that. I've even heard people say, well, I just couldn't forgive myself. And they deal with guilt for years on end because they say, oh, I couldn't forgive myself. You know what? I don't find that in the Bible. The only thing I find about forgiving is God forgiving you. Jesus forgave you of even the most terrible sin that you might commit. Because earlier in our message, we already said, you know, that all the sins are basically the same. You offend in one point, you've offended in all points. And so Jesus forgave this woman taken in adultery. And then lastly, she or Jesus freed her. She not only had a new Lord, she had a new life. All of her life, she had been subject to the God of this world, Satan. 
She'd been a prisoner of her own lusts and her own desires. And yet Jesus came and unlocked the shackles that held her in bound, bound in sin, and he set her free. Her life was changed. Think of the, her years later that she looked, perhaps we don't know too, anything about her after this, but maybe she looked at her children or her husband, the family she never would have had hadn't she met Jesus. You know, Jesus specializes in taking wasted, ruined lives and saving them by his grace, restoring them to usefulness. Every person who comes to Jesus for salvation receives a new lease on life. We get a chance to begin again, and this time we actually have a chance to make something out of our lives. I want you to notice here something that Jesus said in verse 10. He said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Now, he only uses this term, woman, twice in the Gospel of John. Once in chapter 2. You remember the occasion in chapter 2? I believe it was for his own mother. And then again in chapter uh, 19. So two other times. Both times it was a title of honor applied to his mother. And it could be equivalent to the term lady. It was a term of honor given to a woman worthy of honor. And this woman was anything but a woman of honor. But Jesus has a way of seeing things that are not as though they were. In other words, he did not see this woman as she was. He saw her as she was to become through him. Jesus took a wicked, godless, carnal person and turned her into a lady. When Jesus looks at a sinner, surely he sees the potential in their lives. And like he did with this woman, he sees them as they can be seen through him. Friend, life doesn't come or doesn't have to remain like it is today for you. It can be better and it can become new if you'll come to Jesus. And by the way, any male or female can live like the devil. But it takes a real man, a real woman to live for Jesus. At a special chapel service in Ohio Penitentiary, the governor was to grant freedom to several convicts. The suspense mounted as it came Time for the governor to announce the names of those selected. Reuben Johnson, come forward and receive your pardon. No one responded. The chaplain directed his attention toward Johnson and said, Reuben, it's you, come on. But the man looked behind him, supposing that there must have been someone else by that name. And then pointing directly at him, the chaplain exclaimed, that's right, you're the man. After a long pause, he slowly approached the governor to receive his pardon. Later, when other prisoners marched to their cells, Johnson fell in line, began to walk with them, and the warden said, Reuben, wait a minute. You don't belong here anymore. You're a free man. That's what Jesus does. He pardons us from our sins and makes us free. There's a man by the name of Caleb Young. 
down in Kentucky, thought that a man in his state's prison was serving a life term that was too heavily sentenced. And bringing influence to bear upon the governor, he obtained a pardon from, uh, for the man, and he went to the prison, had a, a talk with the man, and he said to him, now if you were to be released from this place, what would you do? The man vindictively replied, I would go and shoot the judge that sent me, the lawyer that prosecuted me, and the witnesses that testified against me. Mr. Mr. Young said nothing to the man about the pardon. He went out of the prison. He tore the pardon into pieces. You see, Jesus doesn't pardon sinners to leave them as he found them. He pardons them to change them forever. And he won't save you and leave you in your sins. Along with salvation comes a new life and liberty from sin's dominion. Maybe like this woman, your life has been wrecked and ruined by sin. Maybe you've been hurt by religious people. Maybe you're looking for a compassionate Savior, one who will make everything right. And again, even though we may be in a room full of saved people who can point back to a day when they trusted Christ, maybe there's someone here that needs to come to Jesus. You know, just coming to church all your life doesn't save you. Just being religious doesn't save you. You've got to come to Christ. He cares about you just as you are. He loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to deliver you from your bondage. He wants to set you free. George Wilson was sentenced to hang after he was convicted of killing a guard while robbing a federal payroll from a train. Public sentiment against capital punishment led to an eventual pardon by President Andrew Jackson. Unbelievably, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Can one do that? The case became so legally confusing that the Supreme Court had to rule upon it. And Chief Justice John Marshall delivered the verdict, A pardon is a piece of paper, the matter which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept pardon. But if refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And consequently, Wilson was hanged. What's the point? Well, God's grace becomes a pardon from sin only for those who receive it. If you've never been saved, if you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, if you're still lost in your sins and headed to hell, you're in terrible danger today. You see, you stand condemned before God and you are destined for hell, but there is a pardon available if you'll have it. But you've got to receive it. You see, Jesus, the same gracious Savior who intervened in this woman's life and changed everything for her, He went to the cross and He paid for your sin. He died on that cross. And when He died, He was dying for you and for me. And He was dying so that we might live Three days after he died, he arose from the dead and he invites us to come to him by faith and by, uh, for salvation to receive the pardon that he has for us. If you don't receive it, it is no pardon. You see, 
We stand before God condemned. We're on the gallows and the noose is around our neck. At any moment we could find ourselves dead and lost forever in the fires of hell. But that doesn't have to happen. Because Jesus stands ready to pardon, to receive if we come to him. I wonder if there's someone this morning that God is calling. If he is, then you need to come to him today. What about believers, people who say, I've been saved for 50 years. I've been saved for 10 years. I've been saved. Are you living like it? Are you living like you have that pardon? Or are you living for the devil? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that...